So uh, there was a list published by Kent State University, and they talked about a list of table manners. And I don't know about you, uh, maybe your mother nagged you before about having proper manners, um, or maybe it was uh, your, your uh, spouse or someone, you know, and we've all maybe heard some. And the list goes like this. It says, when you are at a social hour or reception, you are supposed to always have one hand free, right? My whole life at every reception at a wedding, I've had two plates in each hand, right? So I, I didn't know that till I read this. So that you could shake your head and they write, so if you are hungry, just wait till dinner. Like keep one hand free so you can shake hands and have it ready. Um, I thought it was keep one hand free so you can grab the skewers as they come by, right, with the little um, uh, snacks beforehand. Uh, when you get to the dinner table, some of the uh, manners include uh, fork in your left, knife in your right. Um, it says also cut the meat as you are going. Don't pre-chop everything and just eat. I have friends that pre-chop everything into bite size and eat, and maybe some of us do, but it says cut as you are eating. Do not hold your fork or your knife in a fist, right? Like, don't hold it like this. It's kind of threatening, right? Don't hold it like this. Hold it the normal way. Um, napkins belong on your lap. If you have hot soup, don't blow on your soup to cool it off. You got to gently stir it, it says. And you don't want COVID going around the table, especially nowadays. And then lastly, it says, when your food is served, wait till everyone receives their food before you start eating. Now, um, this sermon isn't about just table manners in this way, but it's the Bible talks about this. In the passage that we read, Paul here points this out, and he rebukes a group for eating first. And I remember when I first read this, and I, when I wasn't thinking, years back, and I wasn't thinking deeply about it, I thought, I thought it must be like table manners. And, and in a way it is, because table manners is about other people. It's assuming that there are other people there. You are eating together. You are consuming together. So you have etiquette because you are thinking about the other person. And this is what uh, Paul is talking about as he talks about now eating together. Uh, today is the perfect Sunday to talk about this because we will have a time of communion. We will have a fellowship lunch afterwards. And all of this is a continuation of what was happening in the first century church. So, in the early church, they would have what, um, uh, what was written in, it's mentioned in Jude 12, it's mentioned in other parts as an agape feast or a love feast as it was known, all the way to about 300 AD. So the church would gather and it would be a potluck of epic proportions and people would bring the food together and they would meet at someone's home or a common place and they would eat. And at the end of the food, they would then pause and have a time to have the Lord's Supper or communion, as we could call it. And so it was a, a regular occurrence. It was a popular thing that people loved coming to this. And so it was a good thing. And we see it here in 1 Corinthians. It was happening at the church in Corinth. But they took what was so great, a love feast, and they started turning it into now something that was divisive. And you say, well, is it because someone eats fast? Is it because someone has bad manners? What is he talking about? But today we want to look at uh, the table. You know, the, the table 
I don't know if your home has certain traditions or even certain expectations about the table. But when you come to the table, when you go out to eat with a group of friends at the table, you ever eat with someone that's just looking on their phone and, you want, and you're by yourself? Um, or you ever go there and someone's late? Um, and you say, boy, it's something more than just consuming food because we can all eat by ourselves, but it's about now fellowship. It's something deeper. There is a sense of intimacy. What do people do when they go on their first date, second date? Usually they might start with, let's just get coffee because eating a meal together, there's something a little bit more intimate in this. And that's what's happening here. And we're going to look at the table. We're going to look at the guests at the table today. I broke it down in three parts. We're going to look at the the food that's on the table, and we're going to look at the host of the table. We want to consider those, and it'll help us to answer why Paul is so upset that some people are eating first. Now, the guests at the table. Um, There's two groups that's starting to come about, and there's division. Remember, this is supposed to be like a family meal with the church, but now the group is now, there is division here. And what's happening is the division is now split between the haves And the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And so as they are now coming to the table, it's being very evident, it's become very evident that the rich were discriminating against now the poor in a very subtle way. And it was happening at the agape feast, at the Lord's table. They weren't waiting for them. And it says here in this, in verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Here's a rebuke. And he says, what? There are some who are still hungry, and there are some who's drunk. They had too much to drink. And he is now rebuking them because group A which were the haves or the rich, they were not waiting for the have-nots. It says in verse 33, which we didn't read, read, but it says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be judgment. It will not be judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So what's happening here? is the church would gather, and it was now a potluck of epic proportions, and people are bringing the best of meats and food and wine, and it's a great place, and they're coming together. But the rich would come first. The rich had more time. The rich had more uh, freedom. And you would get in the church now people who were still slaves, people who were having menial jobs, and they couldn't make it early, and the rich said, let's just meet early. Let's just meet early, because it was now a potluck. And so the rich would gather first, and they would now bring the best of meats, the best of breads, the best of wine, and they would feast, and they'd have a good time. And they say, oh, this is so good, just us. Literally, the people who would come late, they would smell. They wouldn't have the right etiquette. They wouldn't bring anything to share. They had nothing much to share. Old bread, maybe old something. And they said, let's just eat. And they said, let's not wait for them. Let's just eat first. And in the act of eating first, it says here, they were already done. They were a little tipsy from the food and drink. And then people are coming. There's nothing to eat. And they're humiliated, he says in the text that we read. 
And so now a division has been drawn. And the table meant so much more than just having a meal. The table of Christ, uh, John Calvin talks about this. He calls the Lord's Supper, the eating together, the fellowship, he calls it, quote-unquote, a bond of love. It was a place where love is shared. You talk together, you listen to one another, you share things, you take things. It was a bond of love. You both consume the same thing, and you draw closer together to each other. But the table in the secular society in Rome and during those days, the table or the banquet represented now classes, social classes. When you read the Gospels, there's all all these arguments. People are bickering about where they're going to sit. John and James, the disciples, are asking the Lord, can we sit at your your right and at your left? You remember that? You say, who cares where they sit? Remember, Jesus was accused of eating with now sinners. He was eating with tax collectors. Remember Zacchaeus, who was now uh, you know, forgiven by God, and Jesus tells him, I want to eat in your house today. All of those things, eating together signifies now a social connection. We are the same. I am at your level. You are at my level. We are friends. And so who you ate with, where you sat at a table, determined the pecking order in society. And everyone would judge you according to that. And so if you got an invitation to someone important, that was a big deal. Uh, It's kind of, I don't know, in modern day terms, I don't know if I'm right in this, but it's like someone who's uh, famous on Instagram with a check mark, right? Um, It's like they take a picture with you and they post you on their site. And you have like 100 people, right, following. Wow, that's a big deal. Um, maybe I'm wrong on this. Some of you are like, what, what are you talking about? But, you know, oftentimes you see like rich pe- uh, uh, people that, have, that are famous post other people who are famous. Oh, we had such a good time. We're best friends, you know. But, no, you guys really know each other, right? Um, as we as normal people don't get to do that. And that was kind of the idea in a social way. It was me letting people know publicly This is my friend. And so when they came to the church, all of that is abolished. Either Greek or Jew or slave or free, male or female, Jesus says that everyone is on equal ground in the church. But as time had gone on, now the haves were discriminating and mistreating the have-nots. They brought nothing to the table. They're loud. They smell. They don't have etiquette. Let's just have the good stuff here. And Paul rebukes those in Corinth for doing this. You know, there was a study done and uh, a couple of neurologists at Princeton uh, years back. And they did a study where they um, took volunteers and they had them look at pictures of what looked like rich people. They were dressed in fancy suits or fancy fashion and in front of expensive cars. and, And then they had pictures of people who were homeless. And they scanned the brains of the volunteers as they looked at each picture. And one of the things that they noticed was that the part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, as it's called, um, that is stimulated or wakes up when you see someone like you, when you see another human being, it would light up as they saw pictures of the rich. 
There was a sense of empathy or sympathy, and I could relate, and this is human, and I, I, I know who they are, and they would, it would light up in this way. But when they saw, the volunteers saw the pictures of the homeless, that part didn't light up. It was a part of the brain that would get stimulated if you saw an inanimate object. You would see a car. You would see a skateboard. Um, you would see a grocery cart. Different parts. Because we, and then what happened was they said, those who were now homeless are viewed and they are dehumanized. And they did this study and they connected it to how uh, in Nazi Germany people were, would view the Jews during those times. They saw them as subhuman, less human. And so they didn't have a sympathy towards them. They didn't feel bad towards them. They're just there. They're like props. They're dehumanized. And that same thing was going on then. It happens now. Um, I hear people in, in church world, as pastors, I hear people talk about different churches. And I hear people going to a different church or pastors going to a different church and they would describe the church. Oh, they, these are, that church is just, man, there's high-powered people. It's a bunch of important people there. And I've heard descriptions like that. And part of me initially, I thought, wow, that's wonderful. You know, these are, these are the elite, man, it's an it's a intellectual congregation because of where they live, what they do. But how foolish is it that we might sit there and now think someone is more important than others. Someone is now dehumanized in this way. And you can see now the rich or the self-important, one aspect of it uh, that we all have to be very careful is we become in a rush. We don't want to wait for people. We do not want to wait for someone else, especially those we think are less worthy than us. And if you are a person like me, who is always in a rush, right? I mean, it is like to stand in the wrong line at the market and where, you, you already know, like that lady with the red shirt, I would have been behind her and they're already through. You're like, oh my gosh, it just ruined my day, right? They're done. I, I see them like going in the car and, um, and I'm waiting waiting still because this person has coupons and it's taking I'm like who uses coupons right um, and it's driving you crazy it's Corey Ten Boom who says if the devil can't make you sin he will make you busy you could tell you could say the rich thought oh I'm just busy my time is worth more I am more of importance my health matters. I have to eat the good food. What if I get sick? And they had a bunch of excuses that important, quote-unquote, important people might have with them, and they discriminated against those who did not have enough. There's a story written by, uh, 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 in uh, the New York Times about uh, a couple named David, uh, David and Kathy Simpson. They lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and they lived in a part that was um, uh, filled with uh, people in the kind of lower socioeconomic um, neighborhoods. And their child, their son, Santi, one day came home and told their parents about his friend that he met. And he said, my friend so-and-so, when he goes home, he has nothing to eat. Um, his parents don't come home, uh, and he has literally no food. So he eats one meal a day at, at school, and that's it. And so this couple decided to invite him for dinner. 
And what started as Santi inviting just one friend, they realized in that neighborhood, it wasn't just that one friend, but there were many, many kids. So they now started doing this every Thursday. And they would have a dinner, and they would invite all of their friends who didn't have anything to eat. And they were filled with young people. Teenagers would come, and they would eat. And they had a few rules. You couldn't be on your smartphone when you're at the dinner table. Um, and uh, you would come, and you had to give the uh, hug to the mom and dad, and you had to come and eat. So the writer of this article goes, and he visits. And they've been doing this for two years every Thursday. And he is so moved by what he felt at that place, he takes his young daughter to go with him one day to experience this. And as they had dinner and talk and laughs and this and that and meeting new people, um, as they were leaving, his daughter told him, Dad, that, that was the warmest place I've ever been. And that's the picture we have of the communion table. J.I. Packer reminds us, the communion table must bring to us a deeper realization of our fellowship together. If I go into a church for communion service where not too many folks are present to me, it is a matter of conscience to sit beside someone. This togetherness is part of what is involved in sharing in Eucharistic worship in a way that edifies. So he purposely uh, would go and sit closer to someone if the church was big or if someone was sitting alone as they would take communion because you're taking it together in this way. And so the table, the guests at the table are all important. They all matter. We wait for all of them. Everyone deserves the best bread and the best uh, meats and the best wine. Everyone deserves the best. They are all the children of God. And I often hear sometimes people say, I hear younger people talk about older people. Oh, it's the older people. They're so set in their way, you know. Um, oh, gosh, they're, they're just there. And I hear complaints sometimes from older people about younger people. Oh, they, they're like locusts. They just eat everything, you know. They're loud and they eat everything, you know. And in the church world, I hear people say, oh, yeah, that church is filled with a bunch of college students. You know, they pay a dollar offering and they eat like $20 worth. You know, it's like, oh, it's so hard. And I hear things and we laugh about it jokingly. But everyone is important. Every person is important. Every guest at the table is important. Now we look at, secondly, the food on the table. In this passage that we read, Jesus, Paul relays the words of Christ. And he says, the, the bread and the cup of wine. Um, It says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it was the bread and the wine that was now given. What did bread represent? Bread represented life. Sustenance for life. Um, You know, the blessing that uh, was given, Genesis 27, 28, for example, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. It was the idea of abundance. It was food. You know, for Asian culture, it might not be bread, but it's what? Rice, right? 
It's like, if you have some rice, you're good. I remember during COVID, when everything was weird, remember when you couldn't find toilet paper. At one point, I got messages from people that said, they're not going to have rice in California. I don't know if you got it. I don't know if maybe one of you originated this uh, urban myth, but I got this message. There's going to be no rice. And I was like, well, toilet paper, I could deal with, right? Rice, I cannot. And I remember going to the market, and then I thought, well, is it real? But just in case, it doesn't hurt to get a few extra bags of rice and get one for the, the grandparents. And I went to the market with my mask on. It was like, uh, I'm on this mission. And I went, and I saw a couple of our, our church members at the market with a cart filled with rice. Did you hear? Right? I'm like, oh, my gosh. I guess it's real. And all the cheaper rice was gone. They had like the $30 organic rice, which no you know, uh, one would ever buy. So I remember buying those. Okay, we're going to survive COVID, right? We might not have toilet paper, but we got rice and we had it. Um, bread was looked upon that. Why is it that Jesus says that he is the bread of life? It's sustenance. Wine is looked upon as a gift from God, uh, a source of joy. When you read Ecclesiastes or the Psalms, it often talks about how wine gladdens the heart. It says in Psalm 104, 14, 15, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Gladden the heart of man, it says. That's what wine does. So it's a source of joy. It's a source of life. It represents who Jesus Christ is in the new covenant it's given. And wine is given not just by itself, but it's given in a cup. It keeps saying the cup. The cup has to be there. And the cup represented in the Old Testament, the cup of suffering. When you drink the cup, you're sharing in the suffering. And today in athletic events, oftentimes when you win something, you win a cup. And the cup now represents the suffering and the trials and the hardships that the victor had to go through in order to win the trophy. It was now the cup of suffering is given as the prize. For you to remember, all that suffering was worth it. And so when Jesus is passing the cup around, and they're drinking wine from the cup, it wasn't just a fancy glass or the shape of it that mattered, but what it represented was the suffering behind it yeah it is supposed to give you joy but at the same time someone had to suffer to give this to you and it's given to us in this way now just to be a a little bit technical um, there are different views and I just want to share this for a few moments with you views on communion Um, four views on it the Roman Catholic Church believes in what's called transubstantiation. It's a big word. They believe that the elements turn into, after the priest blesses it, it turns into the literal body and the blood of Jesus. Literally, it, it, it's changed. It looks like bread and wine, but it's changed. So it's transformed. The, um, the substance is transformed, they say. Well, the reformers came and they saw well, that, that's not uh, as biblical as they thought. And there's now Luther comes and he calls uh, the second, which is a concept, substantiation, which is the idea that it's not that it changes, but it's like a, um, Christ's presence is now infused in it. It's like a sponge 
and you get it filled with water. It's not that the sponge becomes water, it's filled with water, and that's what they thought. Some have interpreted it um, as that it's just purely symbolic. It's just a memorial. It's just symbols. Zwingli said this, and it's just, there's nothing mystical that happens here. Calvin, the Reformed perspective, this is um, what I think is the proper perspective, believes in a spiritual presence. When we take communion, this is a, a means of God's grace to us. We take this, nothing happens to this, but Christ is with us. And as we take now the sacrament of communion, he is present with us. He blesses us. He gives us now his grace to us as we take this. So nothing happens. And so you see certain traditions, the priest will have to finish all the wine because it was now the blood, so they'll drink it all. And they had deacons and others in the church, they would pass it down and make them drink it all. You can imagine, right? I don't know if they would finish Mass if they had too much left of all that wine. Some would go and bury it, thinking, boy, this is now like the burial of Christ. Uh, no, we believe that Christ is present with us as we take communion spiritually. Right? So we see that. What's on the table matters. And what's most important is the host of the table. Thirdly, the host of the table. Who invites us? It's the host, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, it says this, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, the host is Jesus Christ. He initiates it by saying, Looking back, do this in remembrance. Remembrance is always looking back. It's a memory. It's about something that was done in the past. The body was broken, the blood was shed. We remember the cross. And then he says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes, it's a future. It's a future completion. And so what we see about the host is he invites us. And he invites all of us. And we might go to this table, and you might think, oh, wow, first of all, wow, I was invited. Some of us might be foolish enough to think, I know why I was invited, but how did he get the invitation? <laughs> how did she get the invitation? What, what is she doing here, right? Well, it's a mistake. I, why are they here? Are they workers? Oh, they're guests? Oh, my gosh, what are they doing? And we might foolishly think that, but the host that invites us, the gospel truth is that we are invited because of nothing that we've done. The gospel humbles us. The host that invites us to the table says to come sit next to me. And we go there and say, do you know who I am? I am a nobody. And he says, come. The prodigal son, when he comes back, what does he say to his father after he's spent all the money and uh, uh, disgraced his father? He says, make me like one of your hired men. I'll work for you. And me might approach the host and say, can I work? I'll just work in the kitchen if I can get some leftovers, if I can earn a seat at the table. But he says, no, you sit at the VIP seat. You sit right next to me because of nothing you've done and all that he's done. 
And yet at the same time, we might come and say, I, I deserve nothing. Do I, am I supposed to eat this good food and drink this good wine? And he says, yes, it's all for you. And he elevates us far more than anything here on earth. And this is the good news of what the host has done for us. We pause and we look back in remembrance. What has he done for us? We look forward that he will come back. I know there's a few uh, high school um, seniors here. Um, and uh, we, we remember, I remember that age. Some of you are like, you do? I do, right? We remember. Um, the second semester of high school was the best time of high school, right? But it doesn't matter. Why? I got into the school I was going to go to. And I'm already committed. They said, congratulations, you're in. So it didn't really matter how I did in school at that point. Senior ditch day, no problem. I'm participating in that. You know, you want me to, you want me to start it? I'll start it. I'll gladly start it. I spent, uh, I don't want to say all this, but I spent a good chunk of my second semester, you know, um, high school life at the local Taco Bell. Like, I used to go back, you know, let's just go to Taco Bell. Let's just go to Taco Bell. Uh, why? Because it's all set. I know where I'm headed. There's nothing I can do here to lose this. I know where I'm headed. And this is what the table is when the host comes and says, hey, you are invited to come and eat of the table, and you are now here always. You are invited, not because of what you've done, but because of what the host has given to us. And everyone who sits at the table is a VIP, not because of what they've done, but because the Lord has chosen them, and now we treat them accordingly in this way. What a beautiful picture of this. What a beautiful picture. And so today, as we, in a moment, as we take communion, as we, after church, as we go eat chicken and rice and pork and all this good stuff, I hope that it would be a, a reminder of the table that we're sitting with others. We're sitting with Christ and we're remembering him in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, you call us to the table an intimate place, a place where now we are elevated as your friends. And we come here, Lord God, not because any of us are better, not because of any of us are smarter or earn something more, but it is purely by your grace. And Lord, it is easy for us to look down on others, ignore the needs of others, care about my own appetite. Would you help us to pause? Would you help us, Lord, to learn to wait? Would you teach us patience? Would you now give grace to us? So, Lord, as we take communion today, Lord, this agape feast today, may your love fill us. May your presence, Lord God, touch us. May we love one another. As we witness our brothers and sisters lining up, grabbing the elements, eating the same, drinking the same. May it, Lord, be our identity that we are one in you. So we thank you, God. So would you bless us here as we take this in Jesus' name. Amen.